Ephesians chapter number 2 tonight. And we're going to be studying part 6 in our series on the phrase, In Whom, that's found in the book of Ephesians. Seven times this little phrase, In Whom, is used in the book of Ephesians. And we've gone through five of them. And uh, essentially what we're dealing with is the position of the believer in Jesus Christ. What we have and who we are in Him tonight. I'm thankful that it is in Him. There's some things we have through Him and by Him and of Him. But I'm thankful that our position is concerning being in Him. And I've shared with you the reason why that is, is because uh, we may do something through someone and something may change. We may be able to do something by someone, and that that may change, whether it's due to us or due to them. But if you're in someone, then your position and your well-being are are, uh, unseverably connected to the position and well-being of that person. The Bible says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I know that who I am in Him I will always be. There's nothing I could do to sever that, even if I wish to. Uh, that neither uh, neither anything shall separate us. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. And God, uh, God gives a laundry list of those things that wouldn't work in uh, Romans chapter number 8. And uh, I believe he only stopped at the end because that was all that was needed. Amen. I don't think anything, as he tells us, can separate us from the love of Christ. So tonight, I want us to look in Ephesians chapter 2. Our text will be found in verse 22, but I want to begin reading at verse number 19. And I want us to read to the end of the chapter. Paul, writing to the Gentile church at Ephesus, says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. This was the in whom we examined last week, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. Now notice verse 22. In whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Let's read that again. In whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Let's pray tonight together. Heavenly Father... Thank You for this day that You've given us. Lord, thank You that it's been a day we've been privileged to come into Your house and to worship. Lord, to hear the songs of Zion and the preaching of Your Word. But Lord, more importantly, to feel Your sweet Holy Spirit. To hear His call and His voice in our hearts' ears. Father, now I would ask You to make clear Your Word to our hearts and lives. Lord, not not just to our ears, although we do need that, Father, but to our hearts and lives that we may apply it that it may change us, Lord, not just challenge us, but change us. Father, if there's one amongst us that's lost and undone, show them their need of Calvary. One that is discouraged and downcast, that You'd uplift them, Lord, or one that is haughty and prideful, that You would abase them. But God, You know what each heart is. You know what each heart's need is. So, Father, we just ask You through the power of the Holy Spirit and of Your Word to meet those needs. Father, to do in us what only You can do. We love you tonight, Lord, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. In verse number 22, and I want to read it again, I want us to notice a little phrase that's used. It's not the phrase, in whom, although we are going to talk about that tonight. But the Bible says, in whom ye also. Those two little words 
are going to define much of what we're going to understand of this passage tonight. Uh, these two little words differentiate from something, and that's important to understand. You'll find that if you'll become a better English student, you'll become a better Bible student. Amen? Uh, if you'll just pay attention to what the Word of God says, you'll understand it a lot more vastly rather than running to this teacher or that teacher or this help or that help. Now, I'm not against getting all the help that we can, but you'll find that the Word of God is pretty plain. And if you'll compare spiritual things with spiritual, and if you'll study the Word of God and let the Bible be a commentary on itself, you'll find you'll gain a lot of ground. The Bible says, "...in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit." And now to get the key and the understanding of what this little phrase, ye also, is denoting, I want you to notice the verse prior to it, "...in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord." Now you may say, preacher, that tells me that verse 22 is speaking of a specific group of people a particular group of people, whereas verse 21 is dealing with a more broad or a more general group of people. But who is this group of people? Let's go back to verse 19 and let's notice it again. Now, therefore, ye... Now, he's speaking to Gentile believers at the church of Ephesus. He says, ye are no more strangers and foreigners. Now, we could say very explicitly and plainly that they would be foreigners concerning us. I don't live in Ephesus. I've never been to Ephesus. And, and that's not my home and that's not my land. And if a person that was from the city of Ephesus was to live in America, they would be considered a foreigner. So we're not talking about nationality or geography here. And if I was to meet someone from Ephesus, they would be a stranger to me because I don't know anyone from the city of Ephesus. So we're not speaking of acquaintanceship and we're not speaking necessarily of friendship. But what does it say? It say but fellow citizens with the saints. So we find out that they're no longer foreigners from the fellowship of saints, from the household of God, from the people of God, from the relationship of God, from the promises of God. But through the blood of Jesus Christ, this group of Gentile believers are now made fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And are built upon, we have the beginning of this building spoken of, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. So as we examine this passage, we note that what we're speaking of is the church. The church is what's in view in this passage. Uh, the gospel was given to the Jew first, but now it's been given to the Greek as well. And through the book of Ephesians, God is revealing to us that there is no difference, that there is no partition wall, that the Gentiles are just as saved as the Jews, and that there is one body, that there is one group, that God has knit them together in the unity of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so in verse 21, when he says, "...in whom all the building fitly framed," as we talked about last week, he's speaking of the church in general, or what we might consider to be the invisible element of the church, uh, not necessarily one specific congregated body, but all those that have been born again into the family of God, all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. But now we come to verse number 22, and the, the scope and the view is narrowed, if you will. So Paul says, I've been talking about the church broadly, but he says, in whom, in Jesus Christ, in whom ye also. So Paul goes from speaking about the church in general to speaking about a particular body of of believers. 
Now I want you to turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be back in the book of Ephesians. But I want to say a few words about the local church. There's much that I can't deal with tonight because time will not permit me. But let me just make a few simple statements. I believe a local church is a scriptural church. I do not believe that the church, as far as a functioning organism in a community, is supposed to be a global entity, but I believe it's to be a local entity. I believe that God has provided us a structure for the local church. I believe when a church does not function according to that structure, no matter how successful they may seem, if they do not follow that structure and that pattern, they're headed for decay and destruction. In fact, you'll find that every single ministry and means that man has concocted and created is prone to disarray and prone to deterioration. And I could spend a lot of time going through the different lists of things. Uh, and uh, by the way, some of these things are not things that I'm against either. I'm for them. I believe they're good tools and I believe they're good things that we can do, but we need to recognize the limitations of these things. And there's certain things that, uh, that are decaying and dwindling and, and waning in this day that we live in. But God has put His authoritative stamp upon the local church. And He made the statement that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Now, of course, this is speaking of the church in general. There's many local churches that have folded up and closed the doors. But God gives us the very pattern for which a church is to be modeled after. And I believe we should follow that. Let me make another statement that I want you to grasp. I believe that a local, independent, autonomous... And by the way, when I say independent, I don't necessarily mean a church that has association with the independent Baptist movement. Now, I'm an independent Baptist. And uh, I've got a lot of friends that are independent Baptists. And if you used to ask me, preacher, what do you identify yourself as? I'd say an independent, fundamental, premillennial, King James only, soul winning, Bible believing Baptist. And I could go along the line and I could give you a lot of different things. I I'm not saying I'm not one of those, but I'm simply saying when I use the term independent, I'm speaking of the structure of a body of believers. In other words, they are not beholden to any denomination, beholden to any man-made organization, but they are free to follow Jesus Christ as He leads that body. And that's what we find in the New Testament. You won't find a denomination in the New Testament. You won't find a denominational headquarters. I like old Tom Malone you say, we don't even know where our hindquarters are, amen? Let alone finding our headquarters. So the denominationalism of the modern day is a constructed thing of man, and that's why there's so many problems, intrinsic and inherent, to denominationalism. You'll never overcome them. They must be worked around. I'm against denominationalism, by the way. I'm against it. But if I wanted to have it, I'd understand that there's some problems that would have to be worked around. You can't run somebody else without them wanting to run you. Amen? And you can't give someone the opportunity to take the authority that belongs only to Jesus Christ without them taking that authority. And you can't be accountable for what someone else does without having authority in their life. Am I right? Are we okay this morning? Uh, evening. <laughs> Maybe I'm not okay. I don't know. <laughs> what I'm saying is this. And let me just share with you. We've we got a few minutes. Amen. I'll preach short. I promise I've got to make up for this morning. Amen. That's why nobody here tonight. But, uh, but uh, you know, let, let me just share with you a conversation I had with the director of the Baptist Missionary Association of America. 
And most of you know, you've been here, and, and, and I'd say the majority of the people in this room were here when I was voted in as pastor. And uh, we just rolled over three years. It's been three years. Hard to believe it's been that long. And so most of you were here, but you know that my decision and, and, and my conviction was that I would not pastor a church that was part of the BMA or the Baptist Missionary Association of America. I felt that in my heart of hearts and in my soul. I wasn't trying to be ugly, and I, I addressed the church before they voted on me, and I told them very explicitly, if you, if you want a BMA pastor, then you don't need to vote me in because I'm not going to stay in the BMA. It's either the BMA or it's me, one of the two. I wasn't trying to be ugly. That's my conviction. I believe in the independence and the autonomy of the local church. But I made a statement to, uh, I believe his name's John David Mitchell, the director of the BMA, and I was talking to him on the phone. And I wanted to make him aware of what was taking place. And uh, I was talking to him, and, and I told him this. I said, you know, the, we have not left the BMA. The BMA left us. We're preaching the same Bible that we have at this church for, for what? Probably 40 years. We're preaching out of the same Bible. We're preaching the same gospel. We're sticking to the same standards. We're still an old-timey, old-fashioned church. We didn't leave the BMA. They left Wall Ridge. They're the ones that changed. They forsook those things. They left those things. We began to talk about, uh, you know, about denominationalism and various things. And, and I told him, I said, Brother Mitchell, I said, the problem is this. He said, oh, we don't tell local churches what to do. I said, well, the problem is this. Your identity is derived from the churches that are a part of your organization. And the identity of the churches that are a part of your organization is derived from you. You're to determine what they are to be. And they're going to determine what you are. And so it is a decaying cycle that takes place. You see, the Southern Baptist Convention, I could name a thousand. We could talk about the Northern Baptist. We could talk about there is a, a, a denomination and an association for missionary Baptists, although probably most missionary Baptist churches are not part of that association. But we could go down the line and we could name any number of denominations. And the fact is they all claim that they don't interfere with the business of their local bodies. They all claim that. But the problem is where does their identity come from? And what identity to the churches that are a part of their organization have. It's got to come from somewhere. I read in this passage and I find out that independent, autonomous local bodies is the scriptural means of God expressing His presence in this world. I'm not, and I talked about this last week, I'm not an independent Baptist because I hate Southern Baptists because I don't hate Southern Baptists. I've got lots of friends that are Southern Baptists. I know lots of Southern Baptists that love the Lord and have a desire to serve Him. I've got friends that, that, that were, were Church of God. And uh, if they believed Church of God teaching and work salvation, they weren't saved. But these people didn't. They had gotten saved umpteen bajillion years ago in a Baptist church. And then they got a Lord by the fleshly appeal and carnality of the tongues movement into the Pentecostal movement. But they loved the Lord. I'm not against that person. And I am not an independent Baptist because I hate any of those entities, because I don't hate any of those entities. I'm an independent Baptist because when I read in my Bible, I read that the church at Ephesus was the church at Ephesus. It was not the uh, Southern Baptist Church of Ephesus, amen? It wasn't the church that had an authority they had to answer to elsewhere. They, you don't find the church at Philippi telling the church at Ephesus what to do. Nor do you find the church at Ephesus telling the church at Philippi what to do. But the Bible teaches that Christ is the head of the church. Him and Him alone. As we read this passage, I had you turn to Matthew 18. That wasn't my sermon, amen. But 
worth saying. In Matthew chapter 18, I want to say a word about what this means, in whom ye also, and what constitutes it. In verse 15, the Bible says, and if you've got a red letter Bible, you recognize quickly that it's our Lord speaking. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. Now I want you to notice this little verse. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. I'm going to tell you what I believe tonight. I believe that many times we apply this church to what is, or applies this verse to what is necessary for public worship. And I believe that that's very true. But I'm going to be honest, there's been a few times I've been by myself and me and the Lord had a meeting. Amen. No, I don't believe this is simply talking about what's required for worship. But I believe what Christ is speaking of here, because He is the head of the church, and the church is His body, is I believe He's giving us the bare bones minimum of what constitutes a local church. And let me make a simple statement to you right now. I believe every single person in this world, once they are born again, is either called to be a part of a local church, or they are called to be that local church. Where two or three, no man by himself. But I used to wonder sometimes, what does the pygmy do in Africa? If he finds a gospel track and accepts Christ as his Savior, he has no church to go to. Well, what, what do the aborigines do that, that may get a track from a missionary and accept the Lord, but there's no church around? And then it dawned on me, where two or three, if he can win another aborigine, he has the beginnings of a local church. If, if the pygmy can win another pygmy, he or she has the beginnings of a local church. Now, I'm not saying that two or three is going to be sufficient uh, to operate in some rogue method or rogue manner. But I'm simply saying this. Every single born-again believer is to be part of a local group, local church of believers gathering together and to worship. It doesn't take much. It doesn't take many. And every one of us is to be a, a part of that. Now you say, preacher, are you talking about having my name on a roll somewhere? No, not necessarily. I, I'll be honest, I don't put a lot of stock in that. we got people on the rolls here. Uh, they've been on there so long, the rolls are getting stale. Amen. And we don't know what's happened to them. We have people that are thriving members of this body. Their, main, their name may not be on that roll. But I'm saying in a meaningful way, being a part of a church and having the accountability that's involved with being a part of church. You know accountability is important. Accountability is important. Why do you think Christ sent the disciples out two by two? That way if one of them laid in bed and missed church, the other one call them. Amen? <laughs> That's why. Because there's something to be said for accountability for someone noticing. Me and my wife were talking on uh, whenever we left here. And we were going to get lunch and, and we were just thinking about people that weren't able to be here this morning. And uh, we're getting to a size now where it's, it's kind of difficult sometimes, just to be honest with you, to, to remember and to consider who all there is. 
But you and I, as brothers and sisters in Christ, there ought to be some accountability betwixt us. I mean, we ought to be love each other enough and be close enough to where if somebody's out and isn't able to be here, there ought to be someone that gives them a call. There ought to be someone that gets in touch. There ought to be someone that says, Hey, we missed you this morning. We missed you this evening. We missed you at this. We missed you. That kind of accountability is important. It helps keeps us in line. It keeps us straight in serving God in a meaningful way where two or three are gathered together. So Paul is speaking of the local church. There's much I won't be able to say tonight, but I want us to notice three things that are given to us in this text of Scripture. I want you to notice, first off, the activity of the church. The activity of the local church. Notice the little phrase that's used in verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 2. In whom ye also are builded together. There's two things that are spoken of and denoted in those two words. And the first of which is growth or advancement. Build it. To be fruitful, to be built. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I wonder this tonight. Could we honestly say of our lives, I'm always abounding. Now, this isn't speaking of the same kind of abounding that Paul talked about when he said, I know both how to abound and how to be abased. But it's speaking of growing in the Lord and being fruitful in Him. You know, I'm going to be honest with you tonight. I think the problem with some of us is we've just got plumb stagnant in our Christian walks. We've done the same thing for so long that it's just become dead and empty to us. And we've become satisfied with the status quo. The Bible teaches that we ought to always be building, always be growing, always be advancing. I was blessed with a wonderful pastor growing up. He had his flaws and failures. and I got a couple. I know you don't know about them, amen, but I know you all think I'm perfect. I know that, but, but I got a couple flaws and failures. But one thing I appreciated about him, and I, I was talking to someone on visitation the other night about this, he had an attitude of no retreat. And I'll share with you a couple of illustrations that were given to me. He pastored Knoxville Baptist Tabernacle for 57 years. And uh, there at the end of his ministry, as it is with a lot of ministries, uh, people began to dwindle and to leave and, and things began to happen. And they have a thousand seat auditorium over there. It's a dinosaur of an auditorium. It's massive. And on most Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, they'd be running uh, probably 75 to 100 people, something in that, in that ballpark. And people would go to him, and we always called him Brother Bob. Brother Bob, Brother Bob. That's what we all, everybody that I ever knew called him either that, or if they didn't know him, they might call him Dr. Bevington. But we all called him Brother Bob. And you go to him, and you say, Brother Bob, why don't we have church in this big Sunday school room over here? It's, it, it was a large room. We called it the big room. That was real fancy. But we, we called it the big room. Now it's the Brother Bob Memorial Mausoleum Auditorium or something now. I don't know what they call it now. We called it the big room. And uh, it was part of the old auditorium in there. And you could see, I don't know, maybe, maybe if you packed them in, maybe 150 or so people just in folding chairs. We'd go to them, we'd say, Brother Bob, we're, we're paying to heat this huge auditorium. Why don't we move into this, into this room? Why don't we do this? And he would always, he'd, he'd wave his finger and he'd say, Brother Toby, that would be a step backwards. That would be a step backwards. And I believe we ought to have common sense in what we do. I believe we ought to be efficient with God's money. But I appreciate a man whose attitude is no retreat. No retreat. We're advancing, we're advancing, we're advancing. We're building, we're growing, we're moving, we're going on for Jesus Christ. That ought to be our attitude. 
There's a lot of churches in this day that we live in that are just stagnant. That's all that's happened to them. They've just stopped in their service for the Lord. God help us that Walridge would never be a place that has grown stagnant in what it's doing for the Lord, but constantly building and moving forward. I don't necessarily mean numerically. It's a blessing to have new people and, and wonderful. We're all so ugly around here. If somebody new comes in, you, you know, you listen for the door, they might be good looking. Amen. We don't know. But... But I'm not talking about numerically necessarily, but I mean advancing in what we're doing for Jesus Christ. That ought to be what we're doing. Constantly going forward and moving forward for Jesus Christ. Nothing in this world, everything in this world is either growing or dying. One of the two. Nothing that is living is static. Everything is growing or it's dying. And our attitude ought to be this. I was sharing this with someone the other day. My my attitude and my belief about Walridge Baptist Church is this. I want every member in Walridge to feel this way. That everyone is needed. Now listen carefully. That everyone is needed, but that nobody is indispensable. You know what I mean by that? I mean that each and every person is needed for the cause of Christ and for the glory of God. But that if something happened, that someone got mad and got out and got cross-eyed and decided they was quitting on God, God's going to give the person that's needed to go on. And that goes from the pastor to each and every pew as well. If I got out and got cross with God and gave up on the ministry, if I wrapped my car around a telephone pole and went on to glory, the church should go on and move on and get another man that loves Christ and that preaches the Word of God and will build and grow for the glory of God. This thing isn't about me no more than it's about you. It's about Him tonight. It's about Him. We're builded. Notice the second thing, the idea of unity. Builded together. Together. That word together is good. I like the word together. Better than apart. Amen? Together. I believe there should be unity in the church. Don't you? Listen, I, something's wrong when we can't get along with one another. I mean, listen, if all our relationship was with one another was getting together, shout about Jesus Christ twice a week, we ought to find a way to get along one with the other. If you can't talk to somebody about their problems without them getting upset, just talk to them about Jesus. He doesn't have any problems. We ought to be able to get along one with another. We ought to learn to be kind with each other. Well, kindness will fix a lot. You know that? If you'll be kind to each other and compassionate with one another, that's what breeds unity in a church. You can have all the machinery in the world. But listen, neighbor, until people learn how to treat each other like they're somebody, you're never going to get along with anyone. I've seen people in my ministry, in my life, that have bounced from church to church to church, uh, starting battles and setting fires, and they never get along. And they think it's everybody else. No, listen, neighbor, it's probably them. A church ought to have unity. We ought to be together. We ought to help one another. We ought to come together to worship. But, but I think it's a good thing when we come together for fellowship, too. I think we've raised a generation of young people that aren't finding fellowship in God's house, so they're finding it in the world. And we're wondering why they're going that way. They're not getting what they need in God's house. We're not providing an environment. We, we want them to go, uh, well, just go knock on doors and then go home. Amen. That's good. No, they need to be provided with an opportunity to fellowship, to meet one another, to get to know one another. That breeds uh, a togetherness in the church. I believe we ought to know each other. I, I went to a church growing up. I'm not trying to reminisce, but you stick with me. I, of course, I'm going to talk about the other church I've been a part of, amen, when we're talking about local churches. And it was a wonderful church, but I'm going to be honest. I went to church with some people in my life that I went to church with for 20 years. I didn't know their last name. Or I didn't know their first name. Or I didn't know where they worked. Or I didn't know if they had any kids. Or I didn't know anything about them. 
I knew they occupied pew number whatever it was, six rows over. That was all I knew about them. That's partially my fault, I'm sure. When you're young, you don't really care. Amen? (laughs) When you're young, you don't really care. But part of the problem, too, is there was not an environment that invoked a togetherness in the church. People getting together, having unity. We're not going to have unity until we learn to focus on Jesus Christ. As long as it's about us, we're going to have problems. As long as the world revolves around us, as long as it's our problems and our needs and our battles, we're always going to have problems. When we'll make it about Him, we'll find the unity that we need. We find the Bible says we're builded together. Every local church is to have unity and to have growth. Those two things. And growth does not necessarily denote numerical growth, but it denotes growth in the Spirit of God, both in exercising ourselves in the cause of Christ, also growing in Scripture and growing in grace and growing in knowledge and these various things. Why don't you notice a second thing? We see not only in this passage the activity of the church, but we see the aspiration of the church. What are we doing? What's our purpose in what we're doing, being a part? Part of this local church. What should our church be like? What are we trying to make it? There's a lot of different answers to that. I mean, I'm be honest with you in this day that we live in, there's some people that believe that their church, the purpose of their church is to be as big as possible. There's also other churches that their goal is to keep it as small as possible. There's churches where their goal is to be as entertaining as possible. There's churches in this world that their goal is to be as isolationist as possible. There's a vast multitude of aspirations and reasons and and purposes for why we're a part of this church. But the Bible gives us one simple aspiration, one purpose, one idea, one goal that we should be meeting. And it's that we're builded together for inhabitation of God. Now, the church in general is to be a holy temple unto the Lord. But the local church specifically is to be a habitation of God. The place where God dwells and meets. Do you hear me carefully? That's what a habitation is, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of things I'm sure you do in your house. A lot of things I probably don't want to know that you do in your house. Amen? But, but number one, it's the place where you dwell. It's your residence. It's where you stay. And number two, it's a place, I like this, it's a place where people know they can go to find you. I like steeples. I'm not saying we'd never, if we built another church, I'm not saying we'd never build a church without a steeple. I mean, I don't know. I don't think we ought to worship the things like they're some kind of obelisk or, or, or some kind of idol. I'm not implying that. But I, but I like the idea of a steeple. And a lot of times I'll tell people when we're riding down the road and, and going places, we'll be coming down Pleasant Ridge. I'll be riding with someone. We'll be coming down Pleasant Ridge. And, and I'll, if, the, if it's the right time of the year, amen, I'll point out to them and I'll say, you see that? That's our steeple. It's to be a beacon. And you know what it's supposed to imply to people? And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether that thing's stuck up on the roof or not. Our testimonies ought to be the the real steeples. And you know what it implies? It implies, here's a place where you can meet with God. Here's a place where God dwells. Let me tell you something. When a church has got to the point that God is not within a hundred miles of what it's doing, it needs to lock the doors. It needs to give it up. They may have thousands of people coming through their doors. Or they may have a select few of just a handful coming through their doors. They may have a lot of entertainment. They may have a a lot of standards. They may have a lot of conviction. They may have a lot of preaching. But when God isn't in it, it means nothing in this day that we live. It means nothing. They're missing the purpose. The purpose in the local church. You say the purpose is to win people to Christ. No. 
That's the work that we're employed in doing. And it's the preeminent work that we're employed in doing. It's the preeminent work to give people the gospel. That ought to be what the church is busy about. But that's not the purpose. The purpose is to bring Him glory. The purpose is to manifest His presence. The purpose is for God to meet with His people in this place. I know a lot of preachers in this day, they don't like it when you have a service with testimonies and with shouting and things. They think that's a waste of time. And I'll be honest, I grew up in a church that, that, that in some ways could, could represent that. I grew up in a church where there wasn't an emphasis put on praise. There wasn't an emphasis put upon worship. There wasn't an emphasis put upon people having a part in the service and worshiping God. That emphasis wasn't there. It was about Bible preaching. I love Bible preaching, you know that? It was about Christ honoring music. I love Christ honoring music. It was about the machine and mechanism of evangelism. Running the buses and knocking on the doors and giving the tracks out. Let me say, I love all those things. I believe a church, if they're able, ought to do every one of those things. But if we do all those things and miss the presence of God, we've missed it all. We've missed it all. It's for a habitation of God. And how does that take place? How does a church become the type of place where God dwells and meets with His people. It doesn't come through uh, through beautiful facilities. That's one of the things, I, I'll be honest, when I first started, uh, you know, when, when God dealt with me about pastoring, Ralph, I, I really, and, and if you take this as a compliment, take it as a compliment, uh, however you want to take it, it's just a simple fact. I thought I was going to have to pastor a dump when I first started pastoring. Amen? I mean, I thought I was going to walk into some place up to its eyeballs in debt. I thought I was going to walk into some place that was a battle zone. And let me say, what a blessing. And what an encouragement and what a help it's been to this young pastor to come into a place where people love the Lord, where people haven't acted irresponsible with the money and got themselves into debt up to their eyeballs, where there's not a great financial burden weighing down on me as a pastor all the time. I mean, if far, the Lord did over and abundantly and exceeding all my wishes or expectations. That's how He does. You know that? That's how He does. It was a blessing to come, and it's still a blessing to this day to pastor this group of people. And there's a lot of things we don't contend with because of the work that was done for the years uh, before that I was here. And uh, a, lot of, a lot was accomplished, and a lot of work was done. I'm very blessed as a pastor to be able to build off of many of those good things. And you have a lot of beautiful facilities, and that's great. Man, that's important. You've got to have a place to meet. I mean, you get people sitting on these hard pews where they get a splinter every time they shout and say, Amen, it's going to affect things. You know, it's a good thing. No, but facilities aren't what brings the presence of God. That's not where the presence of God is, is manifest in beautiful facilities. We go on and on and on, on and on and on through these various elements that churches idolize in this day that we live in. You can have vast numbers. So does Nayland Stadium. You have vast numbers. You can have just a small, elect few that are passionate. So does the coffee house down the road. That's not what does it. There's one thing that affects the service and one thing that enables us to accomplish the will and work of God and the purpose that He has given us to do for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. It's through the Holy Ghost of God that we're able to have the presence of God in our midst. This is a very simple theological principle. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. 
But God the Father is seated in heaven right now, and His Son Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. And so if God is going to visit this vineyard, if God is going to meet with this group of people, the Father is not going to leave His throne in heaven. The Son is not going to leave His throne at the right hand of the Father making intercession. So how is it that God dwells in this place? How is it that God meets with us? How is it that God makes this a habitation of God through the presence and power and through the perception of the Holy Spirit of God? That's how. See, you and I, brethren, if we've been saved, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And He is here to lead us and guide us. Now, let me give you some practical truths. He can be quenched in our lives. He can be grieved in our lives. He can be disobeyed in our lives. And I find that one of the common plagues of many churches is this. People come and they have all the mechanism and they think that's sufficient. All the while, they're rebellious in their hearts to the Holy Ghost. If you don't come surrendered to the Holy Ghost, you're hindering the work of God. Say, preacher, are you saying I ought to stay home if I'm having a... No, I'm saying you ought to go ahead and get it right and come home. I'm saying that our life and our submission and surrendering to the Holy Spirit affects the collective worship and the collective power of God in this place. The ability for the Spirit of God to be manifest through His works. You say, uh, how can the Spirit of God be manifest? Well, you know, God talked about it in, uh, in uh, John chapter number 3 when it said that the wind bloweth where it listeth. You cannot see the wind, but you perceive it by its actions. Tell you when you know the Spirit of God is moving is when people start getting right with God. When people start serving God. When people start getting broken over their sin. You don't see the Spirit of God, but you sure see His effect in a service. So that's what we mean when we say uh, the presence and power of God being manifest and the Spirit of God being manifest. We mean that God has liberty to work in this body of believers. But it, it comes through an individual submission. It ought to be when you walk through the doors of this church, me, you, every single one of us, it ought to be that our attitude is this, Lord, I'm here for you to speak to me. And whatever you say to me, I'm going to listen. I'm going to obey. You'd be amazed how that will revolutionize your spiritual walk if you'll approach worship with that attitude. We often come in with the attitude, Lord, bless me if you can. Just try. I've joked before, and, and there's some truth to this joke. I've joked before, yeah, I think it's good for everybody to get plumb beside themselves at least once. If for no other reason, just to prove to their flesh that they'll do it. And you'll find that a lot of people that swore they'd never be that type turned out to be the biggest that types when the Lord got a hold of them. The person that said, oh, I never shout. You just wait till God squeezes that heart. They might shout. That person says, oh, I never cry. I'm just not that person. You'd be amazed if you'll surrender to God and the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, if you want me to cry, uh, Lord, I'm going to cry. If you want me to shout, I'll shout. If you want me to do a backflip off that pulpit, I'll do a backflip off that pulpit. You may never be that kind, but I think it's good for everybody to be that surrendered to the Holy Spirit. Whatever He asks and requires of you, you would do it. You may not be that kind. I don't know. There's some people I'm glad ain't that kind. Some of us would break that pulpit if we tried that, wouldn't we? 
But the fact of the matter is, I think we ought to all be surrendered and submitted to the Holy Spirit of God, willing to worship in whatever means He would require of us that's within the confines of Scripture. And by the way, it will always be within the confines of Scripture if the Holy Spirit's in it. We don't have to worry about tongue-talking if the Holy Spirit of God is in control. We don't have to worry about wildfire if the Spirit of God is in control. It'll be right if the Spirit of God is in control. We need to be surrendered to Him. If you're not surrendered to the Holy Spirit, then you're rebellious against the Holy Spirit. That's simple, isn't it? If you're not surrendered to the Holy Spirit, you're rebelling against the Holy Spirit. There's two categories. You're either right with the Holy Spirit or you're wrong with the Holy Spirit. One of the two things. I've found that most of the arguing people do with God is done during the invitation time. And I say that because I know that's how it is in my life. I can sit there and I can lay down on God's diagnosis table and I mean, He'll just do a number on me. And He'll come along, He'll grab me by the hand, He'll walk this preacher through his own life, and He'll say, you know, Toby, you shouldn't have done that. I'll say, I know, Lord. You know, Toby, you could have done more right here. I know, Lord, I know. He'll walk me through, you know, Toby is unkind to that person here. I know, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry. He'll do all these different things. And then we'll come to the end of the road and he'll say, all right, now it's time to get it settled. And all of a sudden, we start backpedaling on God. And we start saying, well, you know, Lord, I, you know, I don't know how wrong that really was. Ha, how silly. <laughs> he pointed it out in your life for a reason. It's a stumbling block and a hindrance to your walk with the Lord. That's why he pointed it out. And we'll start backpedaling and we'll start saying, well, you know, Lord, I don't really have to get that right. That was an accident. Yeah, if it was an accident, he wouldn't have pointed it out. And we start backpedaling. We start saying, oh, I like this. I can get right in my seat. Let me tell you something. If you have to tell God that, you're the one that ought to be on the altar. Amen? If you have to tell God that, you say, preacher, are you saying we always have to be at the altar? No, I'm not saying we always have to be at the altar. But I'm saying if we refuse because of the pride of our flesh and the anxiety of our ego, then that is ungodly. If we refuse to do well, what would people think? Well, who cares what they think? We don't care what they think in the way that we dress. We don't care what they think in the way that we act. We don't care what they think in the what we watch. We don't care what they think in the way that we live and in the places we go. But you let it get church time and altar call time and all of a sudden we all care what everyone thinks. No, you don't care what people think. It's a ploy of the devil. He's trying to bully you into not going down to the altar and getting your heart right with the Lord. No, I think if we're, we'll be surrendered to the Holy Spirit of God, we'll find out that He can take over. And He can have liberty. And He can move. And He can work. And listen, church, we need to be conscious that our actions and our rebellion and our stubbornness can hinder the work of God in our church. And that goes from me to you to each and every one of us. It doesn't take much. It doesn't take much to hinder the work of God in a local body. It didn't take much... For God to have to destroy 30-something people in the Old Testament because there was sin in the camp. It didn't take much. It didn't take much. Achan would have had all the excuses in the world as to why he deserved that silver and that gold and that Babylonian garment. But at the end of the day, he knew, and that's why he hid it. That's why he hid it. An honest man doesn't have to hide it. That's why he hid it in the bottom of his tent. He was covering his iniquity, and he did not prosper. He did not prosper. 
The truth of the matter is Achan knew what was wrong in his life and he knew what was wrong in his camp. Hear me now. Achan knew what was wrong in his life and Achan knew what was wrong in his camp. And you might be sitting here tonight and you might be saying, Oh, preacher, it's not me, it's not me, it's not me. But the very reason you're saying that is because it is. And the Holy Spirit of God is dealing with you. Hey, listen, neighbor, I don't know a single thing about any of you concerning secret sin in your life. And I'd sooner not know it hinders my preaching. Sooner or not, no. So don't look up at this preacher and, and say, oh, well, he's picking on me. No, that's not me knocking on your door. I don't know a thing about you. I don't know of any secret sin in your life. But it could be that the Holy Spirit of God is. It could be the Holy Spirit of God is. And He's dealing and He's moving and He's working. The question is, are we going to surrender? For our church to be what it needs to be, the Spirit of God has to have liberty. If He doesn't, we may have everything in the world... That, that is, that is uh, beneficial to a church, but we're, we're still not accomplishing the work of God. Our church has to have liberty in the Holy Spirit of God to worship correctly. To worship not only in truth. Oh, we got a lot of brothers that worship in truth today. And they worship in, in truth and they say, look how, look how true my truth is. Look how wonderful. Look how much I believe my truth. And they got a lot of truth. And truth is wonderful. But it's only one half of the equation. We're to worship in spirit and in truth. What spirit? Well, we're worshiping in our spirit, but our spirit's bearing witness with His spirit. We're worshiping through the Holy Spirit. Turn, and I'm not going to have you do it tonight, but read sometime 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and just count how many times the word spirit is used in correlation to the local church. And you'll find out that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. There's liberty. God can move. God can work. And I'd ask you this question as we close tonight. Maybe there's something in your life that's hindering the work of the Holy Ghost. If there is, when altar call time comes, don't start your arguing with God. Just get it settled. He loves you. He wants to forgive you. He's willing to forgive you. There's a place where you can meet with God. There's a place where you can get it settled. You'll make a lot greater time if you don't try to cover your sins. But if you confess and forsake them, the Lord will forgive you of them. Whatever it is that God's dealt with you about, I beg you and I implore you to deal with Him about it tonight. Oh, He's willing. Oh, He's able to work in our hearts and lives.